I sit and speak to people or interested candidates roughly maybe 12 to 15 times a day, whether it's by email, Skype messaging, or maybe even phone calls. And beyond that, we also speak to our own candidates. And one of the things we really try to understand when we speak to people is their understanding of what the consulting culture or philosophy is. And when we speak to people, we invariably, you know, they invariably tell us, well, the consulting culture is one of hard work. It's one of, you know, being analytically uh, correct. It's one of helping clients with their toughest issues. And to be fair, that is not what the consulting culture is like. That is what you see the consulting culture to be, but that is not what it is. That is what you do as a consultant, but it's not what the culture is. And let me explain this in a different way, right? There are too many consulting firms, management consulting firms for me to to name. There are thousands of them from the large and established firms to the prestigious elite firms to the smaller boutique firms and also the smaller partnerships that serve very niche issues a business may face. So there are a lot of businesses, but what defines them? What separates them? I mean, even if you look at just the, the top 10 firms in terms of size and prestige, they tend to hire from the same places. Sure, I mean, you know, Harvard sends a lot of people to McKinsey, but Harvard also sends a lot of people to Deloitte and Booz and BCG and Bain and so on. These people pretty much did their undergraduate education at the same schools. They had been through the same experiences or similar experiences for the MBA programs. They studied from the same textbooks. They have the same friends. They pretty much are reading the same material, even on consulting projects. Sure, consulting firms have their own IP, but even so, if you want to understand something on, for example, credit derivatives, you have to go to the you know leading authority on that subject, and that'll be some textbook from MIT or Wharton. They travel in the same circles. They fly the same airlines. They use the same laptops. They um, all use PowerPoints, or invariably most do. They all write in the same way. They all go for similar training programs, executive or otherwise. So what what distinguishes the great consulting firms? Well, what distinguishes them is the culture, and I would say the culture is different. Today I want to talk to you about what the culture of consulting really is. And I think that um, the most important thing is to distinguish it from what people think it is. So I think there are five parts here that, uh, maybe four parts that distinguish the culture of consulting firms. And I'm going to talk to each one. The first one is... The way consulting firms make or do not make promises. The second one is the way they manage confidentiality. The third part is ethics. And the fourth part is placing the best interests of clients first. And each of these things are misunderstood by just about everyone we speak to. And you speak to any graduate anywhere in the world and they'll give you a very superficial view or in most cases a total misunderstanding of what these four elements are. So let's talk about promises. Good consulting firms, when I was a consultant, we were trained never to make promises to clients. I mean, we would never promise a client or guarantee anything we did for them. Why? Because there's no way for us to guarantee what would happen. We had no control over what was happening in the industry. <coughs> Moreover, we had no control over what was happening at the client. If we prepared a strategy for a client or even an implementation plan, an operations plan, we had no control over the client's ability to, to implement that plan. Although we could predict what would happen Um, with competitors responding to the client's actions, we had no way of knowing how the client would then respond to to the competitor's reaction to the client's original action. The point is, you should never make promises to a client. And that's a very important sign when you look at consulting firms today. Consulting firms that promise 
are doing a disservice. No services business can make a promise because you do not know what will happen. And a great example of a promise is advertising. In my opinion, consulting firms should not advertise because an advertisement is ultimately a promise. Think about it for a carefully for a second. When you see an advert for BMW um, on your television or wherever it is, if that advert conveys an image of an ultra-luxurious lifestyle, the advert is invariably making a promise that that is the lifestyle you would have if you buy the car. An advert is a promise, and when you buy the product or buy the service, you expect that promise to be fulfilled through that product or service. Consulting firms cannot do that. Therefore, consulting firms should not make promises and should not advertise. And to me, it's very disappointing when I see firms advertising in in the press and you know making promises. And also, you know, some firms try to get around this by saying we just advertise what we do. Consulting firms should never advertise, period. Because when you advertise, you make a promise, and consulting firms can never make a promise because you have no control over what will happen after you undertake the project. The best you can do is you can say what you will attempt to do, but you can never guarantee any results, and therefore you should never advertise. <coughs> Confidentiality. Now, this is something that I've seen broken you know, so many times, it's actually shocking to me. I've seen firms that when they bid against us uh, on projects, uh, the clients would tell us, well, you know, your client said, your competitor said that they had done this project for this client, blah, 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 and so on. The bottom line is that a lot of firms say they maintain confidentiality, but they do not. They are quite happy to talk about work they've done at other clients. They're quite happy to show work they've done at other clients. And I would say, in my opinion, most firms are really poor at this. They all say they maintain strictest confidentiality, but the reality is many do not. Many share information, many change data, and they show it. In fact, what I see very common happen is common happen, uh, happening is that, um, let's say, I'm going to not name any companies that do this, but let's say a company's uh, New York office has done a very important project for, let's say, Pfizer. The New York office <coughs> doesn't trust the Sydney office in Australia, so they don't share the data from the project they did for Pfizer in New York with the Sydney office in Australia, and they say that's confidentiality. But what they actually do is the New York office then feels that since they understand the client the best, if the New York partners are in the meeting, they're happy to talk about it. Confidentiality means no matter who is in the meeting, you will not talk about it. And I find many clients break this rule. In fact, I think many many <coughs> clients would actually, you know, cringe when they see how firms treat or how poorly they treat confidentiality. So confidentiality and making promises at the core of management consulting. You don't make promises and you do not divulge confidential confidential information under any circumstances whatsoever. Let's talk about ethics. Now let's just define ethics here, right? Ethics is doing the right thing when the law has not extended to cover that particular area. Because if the law had already covered to that, had already been extended to cover that particular area, then you wouldn't be worried about whether it's ethical or not because it would be illegal. So always remember that doing something criminal and doing something ethical or unethical are totally different issues. If the law already covers an area, you wouldn't be talking about ethics, you'd be talking about criminal charges. Ethics applies when the rule of the law or the guidance of the law has not been extended far enough to cover this area. 
And ethics applies to a number of areas, you know. But in many cases, because consulting firms are not regulated, well, you know, consulting firms not belonging to Deloitte or the auditing firms are not regulated, ethical rules do apply. And my opinion is that many consulting firms are not ethical. They do things that go against their belief. And I mean, there's a great paper that was written in the Harvard Business Review about this, which talks about espoused values versus practiced values. And most people, when you ask them the kind of values they live by, consultants anyway, they'll talk about what they think they are doing, their espoused values. But when you look at what they actually do, what they actually practice, it's totally different from what they espouse. And ethics is very simply this. The rules of confidentiality, keeping promises, putting the client's best interest first, do you do those things when no one is looking and when the rule of law doesn't apply to you? And I'm saying in most cases people don't actually do that. In fact, most consulting firms are quite happy to um, do whatever they want to gain work because they don't think it's going to hurt them. In fact, if you look at most consulting firms, if you look at the way their partners and the senior managers are rewarded, it's not on their value system, it's about their money they make. I mean, most consulting firms, if you look at the f fundamental metrics on which partners are rewarded, it's the amount of revenue they generate. If you are rewarded on, ge on revenue generation, then that is not the way to run a consulting firm. You should be rewarded on your ability to serve clients to the best of your abilities. If you do that well, then everything else will work. The money will follow. So that's about ethics. Now let's talk about best interest, an area that is vastly misunderstood because one of the core principles of management consulting is to put the client's interest first. And what does that mean? When I when I speak when I when I mention this to most people, they think, well, it's easy to do. You know, it means making the client happy. And and I explain to them, actually, that's not what it means. It's not about making the client happy. And let me explain why it's not about making the client happy. Let's assume you have a client. Um, let's pick a, a company like um, I don't know. Let's say McDonald's, right? McDonald's wants to. Um, leverage the the rising healthcare trend by buying a competitor's business that sells healthy products. Now you you've done work for for McDonald's before and you understand the business because you're a consulting firm that's worked for them a few times before in this strategy and you realize that this is not going to solve McDonald's problems actually. You know full well as the partner that this is a short-term solution to bump up their share price. But in the long term, they, they can't s create a separate business focus on health and still have the business that focuses on selling you know, messy foods that are greasy. You realize the only way for McDonald's to change is to become a truly healthy business and not just have health as a separate division. And you understand that McDonald's is going to spend billions of dollars buying this healthy uh, franchise, but it's not going to solve their business and the, uh, their problems in the long term. So you, you know that if you if you turn down this assignment, it's a, it's a couple of million dollars that you will lose. But you know in your heart that it's the wrong thing for them to do. Now, putting the client's best interest first is telling McDonald's, look, we know that if you do this, it's not going to solve your problems, and we don't think you should do this. And we think if we go ahead and do it, it's, it's really not going to help you. So we'd rather not be involved in this engagement because it's not going to solve your core problems. Very few consulting firms are willing to do that. I, I know of only a few that have done it, really. I mean, I know that I've heard of stories of Roland Berger doing it. I know of stories of McKinsey doing it. I don't know whether they've done it recently. I've heard of stories of Marvin Bauer doing it in his time. I've heard of stories of Bain doing it once or twice, BCG Partners doing it. I've seen them do it several times. But it is very hard to do that. 
consulting partners and consultants will justify it any way they want to get the revenue because at the end of the day, they're metrics. They're rewarded on revenue. It takes a truly magnanimous consultant, a true management consultant, a true professional who is willing to stand up to a client and say, this is not in your best interest and I don't think we should do it and we'll actually walk away from the project. And let me tell you something, most clients will be pissed off if you do that. So when you say putting the client's best interest first means making them happy, then you don't understand what it means to place a client's best interest first. Many times when you place a client's best interest first, it, you make the client unhappy. You make them unhappy, but it, if you did what is truly right, in the long term they will understand what you did was right and they will come back to you for more work. When I was a consulting partner, I've turned down clients sometimes and said, this is not in your best interest and I'm, I don't think we should be doing it. Of course, they were unhappy and they've complained and so on, but in the long term, they always come back to you and say, look, you know, what you said was right and we, you know, it, no, nobody is willing to do that and, and we're actually, you know, we're quite impressed that you were willing to, you know, put your, your, your standards and your ethics first and we would like you to work for us. Now, where you apply this rule counts, if you're working for some junior manager who is, you know, rewarded not for the long-term success of a business, if you turn down work, it's not going to work. He's going to be upset for the rest of his life. But if you are working for the board of directors and if you turn down work, it does work. So, if you some you know if you're working for a consulting firm that's not working at the highest levels, this principle doesn't apply because unfortunately the lower you are in the organization, the less you have the ability to firstly see the long term potential of a business and secondly be rewarded for it. But the point is, putting the best interest of a client first is difficult. In fact, if you work in a firm that is really chasing revenue, a smaller consulting firm, and you reward it for revenue, I can assure you that if you put the best interest of a client first, you may be fired. Or you'll be told that's the most ridiculous thing you've ever done. So it's difficult to do this. It's really difficult to do this. And I'm going to tie up the concept of, of not promising, you know, maintaining confidentiality, applying ethics <coughs> when you're not being watched, and putting the cli client's best interest first in two areas. I'm going to tie it up in the way you sell work. You know, I've met many consultants who, you know, who tell me, how do, Michael, you know, how do we prepare proposals? But I, and I always tell people, you know what, I've never actually prepared a proposal in my life. Most of the work I've done is I've met clients over dinner, I speak to them, I send them emails, and I write them a very thoughtful letter. Sure, my letters go on to be 10, sometimes 15 pages, I know. I admit they can be long, but they're not proposals whereby I explain the firm's competency, where we've done the work before. I don't do those things. I've never done that. I'll meet the client a few times and I'll sketch out what they want us to do, what are the challenges they're facing, what are the considerations, what does good look like, why they're doing this, how they want us to do it, <coughs> and then I'll write them a thoughtful letter. And the letter isn't easy to write. It's not something that I pen together over a, a day. It takes me a few days to write it. But it's a very considered letter where I will sketch out, you know, this is the way we've understood the problem. This is the way we've developed the program over, over these discussions. This is why this problem exists. This is what the firm is trying to fix by addressing this problem. This is the way we'll do it. Not promising results, but I explain the way we'll go about solving the problem and what I think the analysis would look like and why we're doing it, not what the results would look like, because I have no idea what the results would look like. You know you are practicing these concepts, in my opinion, when you are not developing proposals, but you are writing letters to clients. Understand that, because if you're not making a promise to a client, you shouldn't be putting together a proposal. If you have the kind of relationship with a client whereby you can put their best interests first and get away with it, 
That means that you are so close to a client that you don't have to put together a proposal. They know you. And you can write them a letter. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. If you are doing work for governments or state-owned enterprises, they do have to go through a standard uh, procurement process, no matter how close you are to the organization. And th in those cases, you may have to put together proposals. But even so, no promises, do not break the rules of confidentiality, do not be unethical, and you put the client's best interests first. Those four tenets of consulting culture should never be broken. Let's talk about metrics here. If you are a senior manager, manager, principal partner, whatever it is at a consulting firm, and one of the metrics on which you reward your people is revenue, profitability, and so on, uh, I mean, if that's what you are doing, then you are wrong. You are creating a culture where people will do whatever it takes to generate revenue, even if it's not in the client's best interest. And you are creating a business that will fail in the long term. Uh, sure, you will justify this in whatever way you want. But let me tell you something. When you have the power... When you have the confidence, when you have the ability to tell a client, look, I'm not comfortable doing this for you, I do not think it's what is right for you, the dynamic of a relationship changes 180 degrees. I've never met a client who loses respect for me when I can explain why I don't want to do something, but I can explain it articulately and explain why this is not in their best interest. I've never met a client who will say, hey, what you're doing is terrible. We don't want to work with you. Clients are angry. Yes, I've had angry clients. But when I sit down and have the discussion, you know, and, and I really put the interest first and explain to them why I don't want to do this and have a really justifiable reason. I've never met a client who would walk away. The, but the fact that I'm willing to walk away from that money, I'm willing to, to, to actually hurt my profitability, means the client understands that, well, they're not doing it for the money. And that is the core concept here. If you measure yourself on profitability, you will never be profitable. If you measure yourself truly on your ability to help people, and I mean truly to help people, everyone says it, but very few people practice it. In fact, do not look at a firm's mission statement, value statement, and so on when you see what the firm is like. Sit in on the bonus discussion. Sitting on the discussion on how they would retrench people. If the discussion comes up, this person is not bullable. This person did not generate enough revenue. And that firm is not living the values that they proclaim. The key thing is how a firm values value. That's very important. Is a firm values-based or value-based? Value-based firms measure value. Values-based firm measure values that you have. And if you're a value-based firm, then you're looking at billable hours, profitable. In fact, the worst thing I've ever heard, you know, we, we sometimes get invited to boutique firms to sit in on their discussions. I must point out, we never accept fees for this because it's a conflict of interest, but we do sometimes sit in these discussions. And we're sitting in a discussion for one of the world's five largest consulting firms, and they asked us to sit in on a discussion. They were having this debate about wh who, you know, how they should allocate bonuses to their senior consultants. And I heard this, and it made me cringe. And one of the partners said, well... This guy only has a 50% billability. It's his job to find work. And, and I, actually, I actually didn't say anything in the discussion because it wasn't my job to do But afterwards, I did pull aside the partner and I said, hey, hold on a second. The overall billability of your firm is only 70%. If you don't have enough work to go around, how can you expect a senior consultant to get enough work? How can you punish him for not having enough work? It's not his job to find work. So why are you punishing him for something that he has no control over? That's my first problem. My second problem is that, have you told this consultant he needs to be billable? 
That's my th second problem. And my third problem is, even if you did the first two, it's still wrong, because a consultant's problem is not to be billable. That's your staffing office. Your staffing office is meant to look at this consultant and say, is he billable? And if he's not billable, shouldn't you have addressed this a lot earlier? Why is it coming up in his performance review? And my fourth problem is that a consultant's job is not to be billable. His job is to learn to be a good consultant. So forget about his billable hours. Is he a good consultant? Is he able to solve client problems in the best possible way? Is he able to put the client's best interest first? Is he able to analyze things correctly and produce analysis that actually gives thoughtful recommendations that can be implemented? There is no correlation between the quality of his work and his billable hours. In fact, I would like you to look at the... At the um, um, reviews these consultants got rather than their billable hours and you should reward people that got outstanding reviews they have no control over their billable hours and to be honest that's the last time we ever sat in a performance review with that particular firm and it's one of the world's largest firms so what makes a great consultant has nothing to do with your analytical skills and to be frank a brilliant consultant without any ethics or any values is a scandal waiting to happen and Rajat Gupta is a fantastic example of that. So when you ask yourself what makes a great consultant, it has nothing to do with the analytical skills. Oh sure, you need to have that but that's an entry level. It's like being able to say you need to read, you know, read English before you can be a consultant. The analytical skills allow you to play in the game. To win at the game, you have to have the right value system and the right ethical basis. So it's very important you understand this. The culture of consulting has nothing to do with your ability to analyze a spreadsheet. And when people tell me that, you know, Michael, I'm, I'm really strong at analysis, I mean, my eyes glaze over because, yeah, sure, you're strong at analysis, but that doesn't make you a great consultant. And in the long term, if that's what you think, you will never be a great consultant. A great consultant takes the pain of their client personally. And when I say takes the pain, I mean they actually take the pain where it hurts on their bottom line and they live by their principles. There's no point having principles when you justify it away when you need to apply it the most. Always remember that the culture of consulting has nothing to do with the ability to analyze a problem statement. It's the ability to live by very tough values. And I tell this to the consultants you know, we place in the top firms. We advise many of them. You are going to be tested on a daily basis. Do not take the shortcuts just to look good. Practice to do things the right way now when it's harder. Because when the time comes when you're in a senior level, if you've crossed the line, you can never go back. You know, I, re I, re I heard this phrase on a movie. I forget what it was. But this, I forget the movie. And the guy said, you know what? I'm a great I'm, a, I'm an honest man. I've only committed a crime once in my life and 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 his and his colleagues tell him you only have to cross the line once to be a criminal. And I mean this is what applies. Do not justify away lapses of ethics and values. You do it once. That's it. You're not a professional. You're a business person. And management consultants are not business people. We are professionals. We should be holding ourselves to the highest possible standards. It doesn't matter what the legal system thinks of us. It doesn't matter what business thinks of us. If we did something wrong, we sh it should be enough for us to, to, to know that we've crossed the line. Our code of ethics is the only code that applies. And as soon as you breach that, 
you've crossed a line. The culture of consulting should be taken seriously. So I'll end this podcast there. It's a, it's, you know, it's a long podcast, but obviously you know it's very close to me. Be a professional. Don't be a business person. Do not chase profits. Chase the ability and the wherewithal to do what is right. Profits would come, but don't chase profits.